0: Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast, a space for those who are healing from complex and developmental trauma. Introducing your host, Monique Coven, a certified trauma recovery coach, survivor, and thriver. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information with insight that can validate, encourage, and support you on your healing journey you're going to hear stories from other survivors and trauma experts featuring therapists coaches and practitioners we will open up the conversation on effective trauma healing modalities practices and tools if you are interested in trauma recovery coaching as well as recommended books and healing resources head over to www.thehealingtraumapodcast.com and now here is your host Monique Coven.
1: Welcome back. On today's episode, I'm sharing a conversation that I really enjoyed with Dr. Tamara McClintock-Greenberg. And Tamara, she's a clinical psychologist and she's the author of many books. And the one we're going to be focusing on today is her workbook. It's called the Complex PTSD Coping Skills Workbook. So we're going to be talking about this concept of, as she sees complex trauma as an identity theft. And I found that very interesting. And we're going to talk how that sort of applies to trauma survivors, especially when we've had repeated childhood and early childhood trauma. And we're also going to be talking about coping strategies and things that, that can be helpful in the present so that we can have a little bit more joy and feel more connected to our life and to ourselves and others. So now, on to the episode. Hi, Tamara. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good nice to have you here
2: thanks for having me
1: yeah so we're going to talk a little bit about um your book which is called it's a workbook and it's called the complex ptsd coping skills workbook an evidence-based approach to manage fear and anger build confidence and reclaim your identity and <clears throat> I love workbooks because I like to have something to do on my own. It gives me a chance, you know, without like a therapist in my presence to really think about things and to process things. So I love that. And um, there were certain things in here that were a little bit different that I liked that I would maybe we could bring up here and talk about with regards to you know, you start off with uh, seeing trauma really as um theft a theft of your identity. And yeah. th- that that's really interesting. So would you maybe we could start there?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I, I agree. I, I really tried to make this workbook something different, you know, than what was already out there. There are, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of great books and workbooks on trauma and complex trauma. But I think that, um, you know, coming from, I come from a, you know, a middle class, lower to middle class background, um, wasn't raised with privilege, you know, had a full scholarship for graduate school. So I think everything that I learned as a psychologist. And in, in even in college, I always had to translate through a different kind of filter, you know? And so for me, um, when I think about a lot of the approaches for complex trauma, I was really trying to figure out ways to to make things a little bit more user-friendly for clients um, to give them a little bit more control um, over the process of their treatment. Because one of the things, and I'll get to identity theft in a second, but but one of the things that I think has been challenging for survivors of trauma is that a lot of times therapists will have just one or two techniques that they give to everybody who comes in the door without really thinking through well, does the client want this? Can the client tolerate this? You know, in my field, we've become a little bit religious, if you will, about people having, you know, their one or two theories that they abide by and they don't do other things. So um, so for me, one of the things about this book was that I really wanted to make it an opportunity for people to have a lot of different options for healing. And to your bigger point and the bigger point about identity theft is that is really the harshest thing for me about complex trauma is that it does it robs us of our identity. You know, even if you have a good career or a partner and one's life looks, you know, ostensibly good from the outside, it doesn't mean that people feel satisfied and whole internally. Uh,
1: totally. And and I think that's that's one of the things many of us realize at the very beginning. I'm like, okay, so like I've got what I thought was going to create that feeling of safety and security in me. Why do I still feel like I'm still a child in trauma? Doesn't make sense.
2: I know, I know. And exactly. And so, so I think the big thing about the identity theft and this is this is probably a slightly novel way to to think about things but it makes the most sense to me i think the biggest thing about identity theft is because again a lot of us can sort of find our ways in our careers and be happy ish you know right but i think it's this what i call outsourcing it's the way that we outsource our thoughts to other people so in other words trauma survivors are often incredibly gifted at figuring out what other people want from them. And that is a great skill because you need that in order to get through really difficult things, right? You have to be able to give certain people what they want in order to minimize, you know, the impact of the damage that, you know, is going to occur. But we can get a little bit too good at that. And, And by being too good at that, we can sort of forget, well, wait, what do I want? What do I need? And so it becomes this sort of like Um, an ongoing sort of process of outsourcing that just gets more and more powerful as we age, almost to the point sometimes where we become shapeshifters, you know, like, who do you want me to be? And I'll be that person. And it robs us, again, back to the identity theft, it robs us of our own agency. Because again, it's, it's, you know, you can have what looks like a great life, but not feel like you own it. And, And I think that where the rubber, you know, meets the road in terms of that is, how things are in our relationships. Can we set limits? Can we be assertive? Can we know what we really need? Can we feel entitled to say what we really need? And then if we don't get it, how do we handle that? You know, um, so all of those things for me kind of get encompassed in this idea of identity theft.
1: Yeah, Uh, I mean, what you were saying at the beginning so true. If we, if we grow up in an environment that's unsafe very early, our whole identity becomes uh, formed towards survival. And so it's like you said, it's outsourced. We're like looking, okay, how are they behaving? How are they reacting? I got to figure that out. And so we just can totally lose touch with who we are. So no wonder why when we get older, we're like, we don't really know what we want, who we are or even how to ask for it.
2: Right, it's kind of like, the one way I think about it is, it's kind of like hypervigilance, right? Which, you know, everybody has if they have a trauma background. But then it's like the way hypervigilance becomes a cognitive style. Because then you're just sort of like looking outside for everything. And in my field, we really pathologize that. And that bothers me a lot. We call it externalizing and we make people feel terrible about themselves. But really it's so adaptive if you think about it, like that's the way hypervigilant works. You can not pay attention to what's inside because you have to keep an eye for all the terrible things that could happen outside.
1: Yeah, I, I, I love that. You said a couple of things in the book that um, was just really good to hear from a psychologist. One of the things you said was, I mean, it's what you're saying now, which is helping us make sense instead of pathologizing what is completely normal. But you said something that really warmed my heart. You said something like, you know, it's starting to change where our field is starting to understand about complex trauma, though it's slow. And then you said, we really did. Um, I don't know what words you use, but we maybe you could say the words you used. What did you say? It was so helpful yeah, to hear. I
2: think, I think what I said is that we've done a disservice to clients, by making them feel that there's something wrong with them. And, and, and I I really do feel, and not everybody agrees with what I'm about to say, but I, I really feel strongly that personality disorder labels are a mistake. I, I think that we can understand people without having to give them these labels, which quite frankly, statistically, don't really hold up anyway in terms of how we measure the accuracy of diagnoses. Um, so we have definitely let people down um, by implying that, Uh, you know, they, there's something wrong with them. You know, now, now granted, I'm not trying to advocate a position of, you know, everything that's been done to people absolves them from responsibility. Right. I mean, we all have to be responsible for our own lives, but there's this attitude I think that people in my field have had towards trauma survivors, which has made them feel terrible about themselves.
1: Yes. Yeah, definitely. And it's that uh, disorder word, personality disorder, or complex trauma disorder, anxiety disorder, when there's actually, I mean, pr- these are reactions that are not, I mean, they're normal, considering they're a normal response. So I really like that, that you um You acknowledged that, which felt good. I don't think I've ever heard someone say that. It was like, oh, they're taking responsibility, even though you were probably, you're probably too young to even whatever, but it still was nice to hear. Mm -hmm. Healing from trauma can feel complex and overwhelming at times. So many questions and so many modalities. Sometimes you just want a safe space to bring them to and talk about the healing journey. If you'd like to meet for a one-to-one consult with me, you can visit my website at thehealingtraumapodcast.com. The other thing I noticed about your book too is that you're really um you're talking about helping people manage symptoms what we live with every day. So maybe you want to talk a bit about that.
2: Yeah, well Um, no, I think the, the thing that's probably a bit different about this workbook is that I really, really try to, to go into the idea of anger and fear, because I think, again, you know, if you've had trauma, you're going to have a lot of anger and a lot of fear and who wants to feel those things? I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, so we all are trying to get rid of these emotions. And so I really um, and I and I think concepts related to dealing with complex trauma, such as um, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, for example, um, and a lot of approaches, they encourage, you know, affect or what we call emotional affect regulation, emotional modulation, right? And I think those tools can be really useful. However, I worry that we don't want to give people the message that they should get rid of their anger and their fear, because I want people to learn from them. Because I think the road to healing isn't just, again, because if you think about it, it's a little like mini re-traumatizing, right? It's like, well, you're angry. Don't be angry. It's like, well, okay, well how about we just think about what the anger means and try to be really curious about it and think about it in a neutral way. Because the thing is, is, particularly people who have, you know, quote, so-called anger problems, they are remarkably unassertive in their personal lives. They have so much trouble actually setting limits. And so I, again, you know, my whole thing is I just feel like we've judged people very harshly in my field. And particularly when it comes to anger, um, I think that's one way that people have really been judged and get this. It's the weirdest thing ever. If you look at papers on trauma, about 2% of them, PTSD specifically, 2% of papers in my field on PTSD deal with the issue of anger. So we aren't even really talking to people or thinking about the issue. And, and and anger is a criteria of PTSD. And so it's sort of another way we've let people down is we're not even thinking about this big thing, which is an issue for all of us. You know, we all have to figure out what do we do? And especially as women, you know, we, we don't really get any good messages about how to deal with our anger. So I think, you know, one thing I really try to focus on is fear and anger. I think, in particular, in our relationships, are always a big part of our lives and always a big part of our struggles. And of course, the other things are difficult too. You know, um, you know, a- severe anxiety, severe depression, and, and it's not. And I address those things too. But but I think what is more novel about my approach is really leaning into fear and anger because I think those are the things that underlie um a lot of the other symptoms that we see for people with complex trauma.
1: So you're saying like unexpressed anger? No, that's a mm-hmm. great question.
2: It's it's not necessarily it's that's an excellent question because a lot of times people will say, well so do I just tell the person I'm angry? And it's like I, not necessarily in fact I think 90% of us dealing with our anger is internal, you know, because not everybody can hear that we're angry. Um, Sometimes it doesn't do any good. Most of the time people don't want to hear it. And and so we have to think about, okay, well, you know, it's always a risk benefit calculation, right? Because if you're going to express an emotion to somebody else, that's a big risk. And so you want to be thoughtful about, is this worth, you know, my energy, you know, to try to have this difficult conversation and really thinking realistically about, you know, is this something I can work through myself and try to understand that my anger is about the present, but it might also be about the past. Is it partly that I don't want to feel my anger? And so I'm going to tell someone I'm angry in order to just sort of outsource my anger, kind of get it out of me and into someone else, right? And so... It's partly about expressing it. It is. It's partly about learning how to be assertive when we need to, but it's also honestly, it's more about just feeling entitled to be assertive. That's what that's more the issue. And the example would be something like, I don't know, something totally simple that you're in an you're in an Uber and the guy's driving too fast and you're scared and you ask him nicely to slow down and he doesn't. And he drives even faster. And then you start to get really scared and really angry. And, um, you know, you start screaming at him. And then afterwards, you feel like you've done something wrong. When really, that was just a normal response to a dangerous situation. But trauma survivors will feel very terrible about a situation like that. They'll feel like they've done something wrong. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is, don't feel bad if you get baited into a situation where you get angry but at the same time leave a situation before you end up being angry in a way that makes you feel bad about yourself does that make sense
1: yeah yeah it does what was coming to my mind was just um i learning to befriend anger yeah learning to befriend anger but a lot of people again uh have made the connection between, oh, anger is what I experienced in my childhood with that caregiver. And I don't want any part of that. Exactly. But I think this is where it can be helpful to, you know, um, discuss it, work with it, with your therapist um, in a safe space.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And finding a therapist that, you know, can think about anger in a neutral way. Mm Um, yeah. again, people in my field, we aren't really good at thinking about anger, which is interesting mm-hmm. if You think yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah. think a lot of us go into the field because we don't want to have any bad emotions. You know, We, <laughs> we want to help other people get rid of their bad emotions, the quote bad emotions too.
1: Yeah. Wow. The other thing, um, there was a couple of things that I, that I wanted to talk to you about, but one of the things I think can be really helpful for the listening audience to just hear from you is you really make a difference. You talk about the difference between PTSD and CPTSD or complex trauma. Can you tell us the difference between the two? Oh, yeah,
2: absolutely. So um primary, primary, what we now call primary PTSD. We used to call it simple PTSD, but it's obviously not simple if you've been through it, right? So we call it primary PTSD. Now, primary PTSD is when you've had one or two really traumatic, you know, sometimes life-threatening events, um, often as an adult. um, And the events cause significant, you know, difficulties, like all the things you think of, flashbacks, nightmares, feeling numb, um, hypervigilance. And um, when we think of complex trauma, um, you've referred to developmental trauma, and you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's it's trauma that starts in childhood and then continues into adulthood, often because there's a lot of reasons of understanding how people traumatized as children are more likely to be victims. You know, as an adult but the simplest way to say it is that, you know, trauma kind of begets trauma, you know, um, traumatized folks just end up, sometimes it's just a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but it happens more frequently. So it's the aggregate of a of a difficult life. And so you have all of the symptoms of PTSD, right? Like I said, nightmares, flashbacks, feeling hypervigilance, but you also have, the identity theft that i spoke of right um but things like dissociation which is a tendency to leave during stressful situations um and often chronic suicidality difficulties finding meaningful relationships um sometimes substance use sometimes eating disorders too actually um and uh the the other things that go along with dissociation are things that things that we call like derealization and depersonalization, which are basically it's a feeling of just being outside of yourself, not being in your own life, which, you know, can be incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable. And and those symptoms, by the way, particularly depersonalization, feeling like you're not, you know, in your body or you're not um, sort of connected to your identity, that is more trauma na- common, actually, in betrayal trauma. And so betrayal trauma, you know, very similar to developmental trauma, right? Where it's when a trusted caregiver hurts us, um, not a, a random stranger, but somebody who we need on a daily basis. So, um, and and betrayal trauma, quite frankly, is a predictor of more severe complex PTSD symptoms, um, you know, for obvious reasons, I think.
1: You also were saying, um... Oh, I mentioned this earlier about, you know, how it you know wasn't recognized when people would come in with complex trauma. It would be like, no, you don't have the one or two. So you have anxiety, or you have yeah. something else.
2: No, that is that is such a good point. And, and actually, you know, Judy Herman, who I know you had on recently, this is actually her idea, um, you know, from her first book, that a lot of times clients don't connect their current difficulties with past abuse, which I think is like, when I when I read that, I'm just like, oh, my God, that is so true. And so I think the thing to remember is that clients can come in. I mean, I can't tell you how often this has happened. Clients come in and they're like, Basically, I'm so screwed up. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't get along with my boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll say like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I had this horrible thing happen. And this friend died when I was a kid. And, you know, I had this horrible medical illness or whatever it is. And they don't link, they don't link those incidents with their current struggles. And I think that, you know, it doesn't, it makes it harder for therapists, right? Because, they they often rely on people being able to come in and talk about the narratives of their lives which leads me to another i think really important point which is i think one of the the struggles another struggle for folks in my field is i think we have tended to imagine that clients are just like us so a lot of us in my field you know we're anxious we want to talk about our histories we want to talk all the time. We have a lot to say, you know, like if we want someone to listen, you know. Um, but the thing is, is a lot of people, particularly people with complex trauma histories, they don't understand that they they often don't even know sometimes that they have this thing, this sort of identity issues and, pers- you know, personality theft because of their traumatic background. They also don't know how to talk about it. So the old teaching for a long time in my field was you have to help people develop a narrative. And it's like, well, what if the narrative is like really disjointed and they don't remember, right? I mean, I know a ton of people who don't remember anything until after high school, right? Or they, you know, and the memories before that are just so blotchy. And then so we expect people to come in and to tell us what went on in their childhoods. It's like, dude, that's not even possible for a lot of people. So I think, you know, really trying to sort of be mindful that, um, you know, we can just kind of work in the here and now and focus on current relationships, I, I think is, is really, I got kind of far afield from your original point there. But I, you know, I, I think is another really important, you know, part of how I think about working with people with complex trauma.
1: Yeah, it's, it is so interesting that there are so many different approaches, as you said, And I think that, I think you talked about in the book, like the first portion being really um, focusing on the here and now and coping strategies to help you in the here and now and getting curious about your responses and anger and things like that, relationships. Uh, You don't talk about really the second part of, you know, I guess the processing after, but uh, one of the things I noticed is that some people, some people I've noticed may choose to go on at some point doing more deeper work, more processing, but I've seen people who have been really happy just getting the first part because they've never known what it feels like to understand what's happening, to feel safe, to start to feel safe, to have coping skills.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I don't, I mean, I definitely don't dissuade people from, yeah, people call it different things. You could talk about doing quote memory work or, or even exposure therapy, right? Where you're kind of encouraging people to remember things um, while helping them stay calm while they do. I'm not against those approaches Although I should say exposure therapy has a fairly high dropout rate of 40% in some studies. So, um, but I think I, I agree with you that I think for a lot of people, just feeling in control of one's life is is huge. And I always tell people, if, if memories come up, we will deal with them organically. But when you're feeling safe you have to feel safe in order to think about difficult things and so stabilization is like the top 10 things that we do right and then and, and and in addition in the here and now we're always being triggered by our current relationships and so we can also talk about current relationships without having to go too deeply in the past and still you know work through some of those emotions i, I think anyway um you know because my number one thing is you know, I don't want to say like, well, in 10 years, you can start your life once you've worked through all these memories. I want people to have tools, right? I mean, you, you want people to have tools to feel better now. And then if they want to stay in therapy and, and keep talking about stuff and thinking about stuff, great. But let's get you happy-ish, happy ish, you know, as happy as any of us can be, right? But happy, you know, happy ish first, you know.
1: I'm trying to remember in the book that I really like. Oh, yeah. You talked about, um, The difference between, and again, it's generalizing, but still people who have had complex trauma versus people who haven't and how they see the world or how they are in the world, I really like that. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah,
2: yeah, no. I mean, people without complex trauma histories, they have a completely different experience of the world. They feel entitled to have good things. They don't feel guilty when something good happens. They don't feel anxious when something good happens. You know, they have no problem setting limits in relationships. They don't even think twice about it. They don't worry that they're too much for other people. You know, it's it's nice, I would think.
1: <laughs> I'm thinking like people are like, really? And really. And I mean, I know people like that. And uh, yeah, it's really nice. But those of us who have been so preoccupied with being concerned with other people's emotional dysregulation, we never really learn to think about ourselves. And, and yeah. yeah. Well, I- exactly. Because I think,
2: I think part of the issue is that it works to some extent, mm-hmm. right? Like being sensitive to other people can make you a great podcaster and can make you a great therapist, doctor, lawyer, right? I mean, All of these things, I think they can be strengths. It's just that we lean on them too much, you know, and and then they become a habit that we have to learn how to, and it's so hard. It's so hard to not be completely attentive to someone else. And it's, and it's also so subtle, right? It's like, you know, your partner comes home and it's like, you know, again, somebody not without a trauma history might not even notice that the person is in a slightly less good mood than normal. Right. Whereas if you have a trauma history, you're on high alert, like, Oh God, what's going on? Where, you know, they yeah. might've just gotten stuck in trouble, but you're like, Holy
1: shit. He's going to fall yes. apart. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So is there anything that you want to share before we close? Um, yeah. Here's your chance. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I'm happy. I'm I'm really I've
2: I've written a few things, a few books, and I've never been this happy with a book. So for whatever that's worth, like I'm fairly critical of my writing, but I I really love this book. I feel very passionate about it. Um, I feel like I've been doing this for almost 30 years, you know, so it is kind of my voice of this is what I've learned both as a patient, right, and as a therapist. And This is what I think is the most genuine way to help people. And, um, and I, there's a lot of great tools in there, some of which, you know, have been talked about before, but I do think my, my spin on some of this stuff is, is a bit different. And I think that, and and the feedback quite frankly has been that there's something really authentic feeling about the book that people like a lot. And, and it's soothing, I think for that reason, you know, so, um, you know, I, I, I wish I would have had yeah, this book
1: 30 years. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it's, it's just so wonderful to just, to just have this uh, at our fingertips yeah. now. So yeah, really appreciate it. Sorry. That's my dog. And he's agreeing with me. <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't even, I didn't even hear. I have two right here uh, too. Two mine sometimes shows up in, in podcasts. You'll hear a little, you know, <laughs> But I, I love having him near me. So that's great, Tamara. I will put your the link to your book in the show notes. People wanna okay. wanna look at, look for it. And thank you for this conversation.
2: Yeah, it was really, really great to talk to you.
1: It was great to talk to you.